Thank you for joining us on this program titled Person-Centered Care Approaches to the Treatment of Patients with Neuropsychiatric Manifestations of Parkinson's Disease. It is provided by Medeticus and supported by an educational grant from Acadia Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. I'm your host, Fabian Bresson. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements and the learning objectives. You can find them linked in the description or on the activity page of our website, courses.medeticus.com. There, you can also claim your CME credit. This is a chronic disease we're dealing with. They've been dealing with motor symptoms and cognitive changes and changes in mood. Depression is so common year after year. And now suddenly you get symptoms which are even more distressing and can threaten the very relationship that they have. This can sometimes be a tipping point for them. This can be overwhelming to them. And this may be what precipitates someone having to go into a long-term care facility or one spouse saying, I just can't do it anymore. So people come to you in crisis. Their needs are great. And it's been such a long road. If we can intervene with medication, other approaches, and reduce these, it can make a world of difference for them. And you will see some of the most grateful patients and families. So this is why the information we've talked about in this podcast is so important for clinicians to realize and to make certain that they take a very comprehensive approach and that they persevere. That was Dr. Agronin. He's a leading expert on Parkinson's disease psychosis, and we could not be more pleased to have him on our program. He will share his insights on the importance of early identification and evidence-based management of psychotic symptoms in patients with Parkinson's disease. Dr. Gronin, could you tell our listeners something about your background? Hi, my name is Dr. Mark Gronin. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist. I've been practicing in Miami since 1999 and currently serve as the chief medical officer for the Frank C. and Lynn Scaduto Mind Institute and for behavioral health at Miami Jewish Health. And so in essence, I oversee a memory disorder center in Florida. We do comprehensive evaluations of individuals with all sorts of neurocognitive disorders and associated mental health issues. I also run a clinical research program with a focus on Alzheimer's disease and behavioral issues associated with that. And I do a lot of writing on aging issues for various publications. Thank you so much for the introduction, Dr. Gronin. And with that, I would like to jump right into the content. Thank you for joining us. Sure. First of all, thank you so much. I'm really happy to talk on this very important subject. For many clinicians, certainly for patients and their caregivers, this can be a very challenging disorder. And I want to highlight a few very sobering facts for people to keep in mind. For individuals who have been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, Roughly 25% may develop dementia within the first five years after diagnosis, but this rises to nearly 50% after 15 years and over 80% prior to death. So it's a very common associated factor with Parkinson's disease. And in addition, having Parkinson's disease dementia, as we call it, significantly increases the risk for psychotic symptoms such as hallucinations and delusions, which we'll talk about. And these are seen in 
50 to 60% of individuals as the disease progresses. So when you look at these factors, we know that these are some of the most challenging aspects of the disease in addition to motor symptoms, and it's important for patients and caregivers to be educated about them. It's critically important for clinicians to understand how to diagnose and treat these symptoms. Dr. Gronin, starting to talk about what's important when it comes to identifying causes in Parkinson's disease patients, what are the implications of a Parkinson's disease psychosis, or PDP, for patients and their caregivers? How does that diagnosis affect their need for long-term care and the mortality? Unfortunately, Parkinson's disease psychosis has a distinctly negative impact on quality of life. We know that it increases the risk for cognitive impairment or having dementia associated with Parkinson's disease. It increases the risk of mood disorders, of long-term placement, even mortality. And there also appears to be associations between psychosis and other aspects of Parkinson's disease, such as autonomic dysfunction, as well as REM sleep behavior disorder. In turn, all of this dramatically increases caregiver burden. Now, in my experience, delusions, which we define as these fixed false ideas that someone may have, have a greater impact than hallucinations or these false perceptions that people may have in terms of caregiver burden because they can become so pervasive in someone's life and they affect the relationship with the main caregiver. Just imagine a situation in which, and I've had this on a number of occasions, where a patient has a delusion, this false belief that their spouse is unfaithful. And this can extremely disrupt this relationship with the person who is their main caregiver. I've also had individuals who have what we call delusions of misidentification. So they either believe that their house is unfamiliar or that their spouse is an imposter. And again, these delusions affect negatively the caregiver relationship, which they're so dependent on, and so it disrupts the whole process and creates enormous stress and burden across the board. So, Dr. Gronin, moving on, what are the unique features of Parkinson's disease psychosis versus psychoses in patients with other neurocognitive disorders, such as Alzheimer's disease or frontotemporal dementia or vascular dementia? This is such an important question because when working with individuals with neurocognitive disorders, there's going to be a whole spectrum of different disease states, and sometimes there may be some combinations as well. But looking specifically at Parkinson's disease psychosis, there certainly is a much higher prevalence of psychotic symptoms, and they occur much earlier in the course of the disease. If you compare that to, say, Alzheimer's disease or frontotemporal dementia or vascular dementia, second... I would say in Parkinson's disease psychosis, there tends to be a predominance of visual hallucinations. These are seen in up to one-third of those with psychosis in comparison to much lower levels that we may see with other neurocognitive disorders. I would also argue that treatment in Parkinson's disease psychosis can be more challenging, especially with delusions that we may see, because consider what you're trying to do. On the one hand, you might be treating them with, inevitably in Parkinson's disease, you're giving them dopaminergic agents to target the specific nigrostriatal pathways in order to improve the motor symptoms of the disease. At the same time, you're trying to reduce dopamine activity in the mesolimbic pathway. That's the one that we believe is responsible for the psychotic symptoms. But keep in mind, 
you're doing the same thing to the entire brain. So you're trying to increase dopamine well, you're trying to decrease dopamine in other parts of the brain. It's a really difficult balance to achieve to not worsen the motor symptoms while you're trying to improve the psychotic symptoms. You don't have to worry about this same situation with other neurocognitive disorders. So this really makes it a very unique situation, in many ways more challenging. Mm -hmm. Dr. Gronin, so how do you determine in a Parkinson's patient if symptoms of psychosis are related to their underlying condition and medications or if there are acute secondary causes for them? This is the key question when it comes to management and trying to figure out what's the source of these. And I'll give you an example. I had a patient I worked with who had Parkinson's disease, was doing relatively well, but then developed hallucinations. And it turned out this occurred when they had been on a cruise ship and were taking a medication for dizziness with anticholinergic effects. And it basically induced a mild delirium with psychosis. And once the medication was stopped, the hallucination stopped as well. And so this is clearly a case where you had this vulnerability in the brain, but it was a secondary medication causing the issue. We also see individuals who develop hallucinations before they were even started on the levodopa treatment. And so they clearly have Parkinson's disease by diagnosis, but that the disease itself it can be associated with psychotic symptoms. But I would say for the most part, we really see, especially with delusions, more frank and worsening symptoms once you start the actual medication therapy to treat the symptoms of Parkinson's mm -hmm. disease. So how do you determine that? We have to have a good history to look at the time course. Is there a temporal relationship between starting, let's say, the levodopa, carbidopa, and then the onset of hallucinations, or maybe some other medication, such as I gave the example on the cruise ship? And sometimes we really don't know. Or it could be a combination. The disease itself creates a vulnerability. Maybe there were symptoms that were very subtle. And sometimes you can have very subtle hallucinations that the person doesn't really notice or they're not reported, but they're there. And then once you, as the disease progresses, you start medications, they come out more. So you have multiple factors causing this. And I think that's what makes treatment so challenging. As a psychiatrist, I'm sure you have a different approach to... Parkinson's disease psychosis than, for example, a neurologist might. So through your lens, how do you first prefer to approach these patients and how do you structure person-centered care in the interventions? Sure. This is an essential question when it comes to management because even though we want to reach for medications, it, this is difficult to treat. Even under the best of circumstances, even with full access to medications, treating Parkinson's disease psychosis is challenging. So let's talk about non-pharmacologic approaches or behavioral approaches. So for many individuals, if the psychotic symptoms are relatively mild, if they're intermittent, let's say visual hallucinations as an example, simple approaches are to help distract the person, to reduce some of the associated anxiety, that they might have associated with them. How do you do that? Knowing the person, what do they like to do, what's meaningful for them, getting them involved in activities that relate to that can be really important. We can provide counseling for them. I have one patient who works with a social worker. He tends to have hallucinations that in increase as the day wears on, especially in the early evening. And so she's spent time with him so he can identify them, to find ways to ignore them, to distract himself, and really to understand that these are benign. They're a nuisance, but they're not 
real. And he's come to an understanding of that. And not only is he calmer about them when they do occur, but over time, they're less frequent. And this has been looked at in studies. So there, for instance, there's a, one really good study by Dieterich and colleagues, and they looked at almost 50 individuals who had visual hallucinations, some of which also had uh, cognitive impairment. And they looked at a number of different strategies which were really effective. So for instance, they would counsel people to understand that these hallucinations are not real. They would teach them different strategies to reduce the intensity of it. So let's say someone would be seeing a shadow or something in the corner of their eye, they would teach them to turn on the light, something very simple that would then eliminate the trigger for that particular hallucination. Also to help family members interact with them. Family members, caregivers can get very frightened by these. That can increase tension. But by training these family members how to calm the situation, to do what's called reality testing, to really help the person understand that it's not real, all these things made a difference in the study. So we have some really good data showing how effective they can be. Now, that being said, this tends to work better for hallucinations, in particular visual hallucinations, which are the most commonly seen with Parkinson's disease psychosis. I find with delusions it's more difficult because by their definition of a delusion, it's a false fixed idea. You can't talk someone out of it. And so instead what we focus on really is more the distraction, empathizing with how they're feeling and the anxiety, but not necessarily endorsing the content of it. That can be helpful to reduce a lot of the associated anxiety and concern, but it's more challenging to actually get at the core of the delusion. That's really where medications have to play a role. In general, when someone is actively involved on a regular basis in meaningful activities, it tends to have a good effect in terms of keeping them calmer, reducing anxiety, reducing depression. And so maybe they're less triggered by some of these Mm -hmm. symptoms. Mm -hmm. Or if the person feels more secure within the environment, and a lot of that can go to staff training. But the bottom line is this, those same individuals, they're your best informants. They're your eyes and ears. They're going to tell you what they're seeing, what they're experiencing. And together in this multidisciplinary team, their input is going to be critical. Exactly, which naturally leads us into wondering about these interactions with staff that's directly involved with giving care to the patients. And when there's a acute psychosis, it's often a dramatic event that will definitely prompt them to contact the attending physician. So when you're in that situation receiving a call like this, what ideally do you want to be notified about? What really helps you get a good grasp of the situation? I always like to start with just getting a basic description of what they're observing. What are they seeing without jumping to any conclusions? This is important because someone may appear agitated or distressed. They may be reacting to staff in some way. And we need to have an understanding of what's driving that. Is it a misperception? Just imagine if someone has what we call these delusions of misidentification. They might be looking at the nurse or the aide and thinking it's someone else, and that may be frightening them. Or maybe they have a paranoid delusion that their medications or food is being poisoned, and that's why they're refusing to eat or they're fighting with staff when they come in. So getting that description is the first step, and then trying to investigate what may be some of the causes or triggers with this. So Dr. Gronin, after making these points and taking us along to understand identification of psychosis and Parkinson's disease patients and behavioral approaches, we now want to talk about 
options in pharmacologic treatment. So you already told us that the specific medication for Parkinson's can interfere with and exacerbate the psychosis symptoms. So when you adjust this medication, what approach do you take? In what order do you eliminate the drugs? And how do you weigh, for example, fall risk in a movement disorder versus dopamine reduction that might be necessary? Sure. With this approach, I'm always going to work with a neurologist. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist, so there's many areas I focus on, but I always will have a partnership with the treating neurologist. And so the first consideration will be, before we look at the medications used for Parkinson's disease that may be causing the symptoms, are there other medications that are playing a role, especially something that's sedating, or as we talked about, a, one of the culprits, a stimulant or a steroid or something that may be contributing to the symptoms, or maybe a, a substance of abuse, too much alcohol or cannabis, something like that. Once we get beyond that, we're going to look at the medications used to treat Parkinson's disease, and this is roughly the order that we'll look at, and this will be done in concert with a neurologist. Some of the anticholinergics would be the first ones to look at. Can they be reduced? Are they needed? Are they playing a role? <clears throat> Sometimes people accumulate medications that really haven't improved the motor symptoms, but they haven't been stopped either. That would be followed by if the person is on selegiline or amantadine, which can also be used as adjuncts, the base treatment for the Parkinson's disease. Then we look at a dopamine agonist such as pramipexol or bromocryptine, and then the COMT inhibitors such as entacopone, so those will be the first ones that to be looked at, either to reduce the dose, to eliminate them. Eventually, you come to the heart and soul of the treatment for Parkinson's, and that's the levodopa, carbidopa. And so the real question is, is it possible to make a change with those medications, a reduction? You can't eliminate them. Hmm. Knowing that the risk is going to be you can worsen the Parkinson's symptoms, that increases the risk of falling, of having episodes of freezing, just of reducing overall quality of life, what's the risk versus benefit ratio there of worsening the symptoms while trying to improve the psychotic symptoms? Sometimes it's not possible to alter the basic regimen that's treating the Parkinson's. So in that case, we still will proceed with treatment, but you're going to have to live with whatever the causes of it, at least try to mitigate them. But there's too great a risk of altering those medications. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Gronin, we've talked a lot about behavioral approaches, but at what point with a patient do you determine that you've exhausted these and that conservative measures are insufficient and decide to initiate pharmacotherapy? I talked earlier about how we worry about the Parkinson medications themselves, Historically speaking, we use antipsychotic medications and we try to do dose adjustments. One thing to keep in mind is that since 2016, when the FDA approved the medication pimavanserin, we have a different approach. Pimavanserin is a selective serotonin inverse agonist. It's also an antagonist at 5-HD2A receptors. And it was approved for both hallucinations and delusions associated with Parkinson's disease. Because it's not in essence, a dopamine antagonist, we can use it without having to worry about as much that balance 
because we're not counteracting dopamine at the same time we're trying to boost dopamine in the system to treat the actual motor symptoms. And so it gives us that unique perspective mm -hmm. different from the antipsychotics which are historically used here. Mm -hmm. Dr. Gronin, you mentioned we have an on-label medication for this indication of Parkinson's disease psychosis. What can you tell us about its efficacy in studies as well as what with the patients that you're treating? Sure. So the main pivotal study for pimavanserin showed that you had a more significant reduction in psychotic symptoms in individuals on medication versus placebo, and that people tolerated it generally well. And so that efficacy was established. It led to FDA approval of the medication in 2016, and so we've had it as an option since then. We also know that more recent data is also highlighting the fact that these individuals who are on the medication appear to do better in terms of relapse. And that's really important because we know from these symptoms that they do tend to recur, and there's always a risk of taking someone off the medication. And we know the dosing is pretty straightforward. It's pretty much a single dose that we use for it. So when you put these things together, it's nice to have this as an option for treating these very complex patients. So since atypical antipsychotics are still used on patients with Parkinson's disease psychosis, what do we need to keep in mind about handling them and their potential side effects and their efficacy? Sure. P prior to the release of pimavanserin as an on-label treatment for psychosis associated Parkinson's disease, historically we'd use antipsychotic medications. We still do today, whose primary efficacy is related to dopamine antagonism. And so as we talked about before, the challenge is how do you reduce dopamine activity at the same time that you're trying to boost it to treat the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease? That's the challenge. So many people that we start on relatively low-dose antipsychotics to treat the psychotic symptoms who have Parkinson's disease, tolerate them relatively well without significant problems with motor symptoms. And we tend to focus on less potent agents, such as quetiapine and clozapine, as examples. Now, focusing on these, clozapine has been several small studies looking at it and establishing some degree of efficacy for treating these psychotic symptoms associated with Parkinson's disease. One of the main challenges is that clozapine itself can be very sedating. It can increase risk of falls. And also you have to register patients in a monitoring system, and they have to get regular blood draws to look at their white blood cell count given the risk of agranulocytosis. And so this just adds another degree of, for some people, time, some people hassle to monitor that. And plus there's the side effects you really have to monitor for. Quetiapine is certainly in many ways easier to dose. You don't have the same monitoring system. The key challenging w with both these medications, they're less potent, which means you tend to need higher doses to actually have an antipsychotic effect. And as you increase the doses, you increase the risk for sedation, for cognitive changes as a result, for increased falls. So even though we tend to lean towards those if we're using antipsychotics, it comes at that disadvantage. Now, other antipsychotics have been studied, something more potent such as risperidone, and Again, you can get efficacy for reducing psychotic symptoms, but you also have the risk of worsening the motor symptoms. Also keep in mind, in addition to the changes in motor symptoms, you can get with all these medications, risk of fall, sedation, blood pressure changes, 
It can worsen alertness and cognition. And keep in mind, there are the black box warnings regarding, as a class, all these antipsychotics for people with dementia-related psychosis in terms of potentially increasing the risk of mortality. So I've worked with many patients on all these medications, and I've seen all of these different effects. Some people, efficacy is modest. Sometimes you can get control of the symptom, but it's always trying to find the right dose without creating excess side effects in someone who already has motor symptoms and may have cognitive symptoms and lots of mm-hmm. other comorbidities. So this is where we find ourselves. And again, the role of pimavancer in either alone or in combination with these medications means that we have a medication that is not going to be a dopamine antagonist that works through its impact on serotonin receptors. You're not going to have to focus on these gradual dose reductions that we are obligated to do with any antipsychotic in a long-term care setting. Great. Thank you for that overview. Dr. Gronin, thank you for this, for this presentation on identification, behavioral approaches, and pharmacological mm-hmm. approaches to Parkinson's disease psychosis. Finally, if you only had a minute... Which of these points would you think are most important for the clinicians and nurses listening to this program to remember? Parkinson's disease dementia we know is more commonly associated with psychosis than other neurocognitive disorders. When working with patients who are experiencing these symptoms, we always want to assess for what are some of the potential underlying causes of the psychosis. Are there non-pharmacological behavioral approaches we can utilize to reduce their impact, to help patients understand them and even find ways to reduce them? It's important to always utilize these non-pharmacological behavioral approaches, even if we're using medications or regardless of the outcome, because they help to enhance the daily life of individuals with this disease. When using medications, Symptoms that are causing distress, that are not responding to non-pharmacologic approaches. We have a number of options, including pimavanserin, which has an FDA indication for psychosis associated with Parkinson's disease. And we often will use either as adjuncts or substitutes antipsychotic medications. When using antipsychotics, it's important to keep in mind best practices here to document what our target symptoms are, to educate patients and caregivers about the risks versus the benefits, to make sure we, as I mentioned, maintain non-pharmacological behavioral approaches in place, and always to reassess the dosing, to focus on gradual dose reductions. We'd like someone treated with the least amount of medication possible. And I would add, finally, to persevere. As I've talked about These can be very complex and challenging situations. We're dealing with multiple symptoms and comorbidities. And it's important to not give up, to be persistent, to give patients and their caregivers hope. And in the end, we can do well by our patients. Thank you for these points, Dr. Gronin, which I'm sure will all help our listeners improving patient outcomes. And it's been A pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for being on our program. Thank you so much. To receive your free CME credit, complete the questions and evaluation via the link in the description or on our website, courses.medeticus.com. 
There you can also contact us for suggestions and feedback on our programs. Thank you for listening.